Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Sons of Sequoia podcast, our 19th episode. SOS number 19. Here we go. And it's Tuesday, so do you know what that means? Movie Tuesday. It is Movie Tuesday. We're going to uh, talk about a movie. Maybe I should actually pull up the, the soundtrack. Here we go. You couldn't hear it, but I could. Uh, Today we'll be discussing a 2019 documentary that's available on Amazon Prime called The Booksellers, because that was the only movie that we watched this week together. Um, It was interesting. It was good. mm Mm-hmm. It was really good. It was actually... It was more than it, it was, to me. It was fascinating. Uh, uh, I had I had, I could I could uh, I learned a lot of things about books, but also learned things about myself. I kind of have a, a a romance for books myself. Mm-hmm. Should we watch the trailer? Yeah, that'd be great. All right. Um, I have to share screen with sound. There we go. It's a film crew here at the moment. Right. A friend of mine's doing a documentary on booksellers, and I'm a bookseller. It would be very interesting to stop somebody on the street and say, if I say rare book dealer, what do you think of? Older man, elbow patches. Tweed. The Strand was founded by my grandfather in an area called Book Row. Our business was started by our father in 1925. People always asked him, how did you get all three daughters to work for you? And he would say, I guess I'm just lucky. In the 1950s, there were 368 bookstores in New York City. Today, I went and counted, and there were 79. One of the things I remember about those guys, they were very irritated if you wanted to buy a book. They were there so they could read all day. Collecting is about the hunt. The internet has killed the hunt. What the internet did was change the way we talked about what was rare. For a lot of dealers, it was devastating, and it destroyed their livelihood. A lot of people wonder, where's the future of this industry going? It is consistently my experience as a younger dealer that I am talking to older dealers who are so pessimistic, and they're saying, I don't know what you're going to do. And I'm like, I have so many ideas. We're part of a boom in independent bookshops that really engage with their neighborhood in a way that the old chain stores never did. I think it has to come with a love of the material. A good bookseller absolutely is another kind of discoverer and thinker of history. The people that I see reading actual books on the subway are mostly in their 20s. This is one of the few encouraging things you will ever see in a subway. There's obviously a love for it. It's frustrating at times. Is this something you wake up and you say, thank God, I found this? What else would you rather do? Here's an unusual title. Amish Love. Wow, that's quite a picture. (laughs) There it is. Let me unshare your screen. Great. So yeah, um, that was the trailer, so people, I mean, they could hear it and see it and get an idea of what the movie was about. Um, I thought it was about a few things. Uh, First of all, it's about books, obviously. It's called The Booksellers. 
Um, but it's about collectors, people who collect mm-hmm. things. Uh, they're a rare breed, and they're strange folks, but these people seemed eccentric but not bad, you know? And it's about books uh, as a medium. And there are some people sort of opining on how books was the dominant way for 2,000 years, uh, 1,500 years, that information was transmitted from one person to another, from one era to another, from one generation to another. And this is really the first generation, maybe in the last, since 1990, you know, the last 30 years, where that's not true. Uh, And that's pretty fascinating when you think about it. I mean, yeah, we had TV and radio in the 20s, 30s, 40s, 50s. But I think a lot of times, you know, you'd go on TV and you might get two minutes on TV. So you'd go on there and you'd talk about your book. And you'd say, if you really want to know what I have to say, go check out my book. That's right. Uh, I mean, there were longer form radio interviews and stuff, uh, like the Dick Cavett show or, you know, Jack Benny or something or radio talk shows from back in the day. But nowadays, we have, after today, we'll have 19 hours. 19 hours of us chit-chatting, our thoughts, in real time. And it'll be sort of documented and available in audio and video format forever uh, without having put a single word to paper. So things are much different than they used to be. And communicating by talking and listening is very different than communicating by reading. Uh, and especially when you read novels, uh, you, they, one of the one of the uh, visuals is uh, Don Quixote, one of the original uh, uh, manuscripts of Don Quixote. Uh, you read it, and uh, I, I remember Laura had a uh, English teacher who every year he would read Don Quixote in Spanish, in the original language, uh, just because he wanted to, he loved it. He loved Don Quixote and Cervantes. And uh, so you can read these books. Some of them are translated. uh, But I saw a number of things. One is the collector. You're like, oh, I have this book. Have you ever read it? No, but I have the book. Uh, That happens. Uh, but a lot of them, uh, the history of the book, I have the original, uh, that type of thing. And and also it's kind of like a, a romantic respect for uh, the literary world. And I began to see that in the movie, which I thought was, I never thought of it that way. But then I began to realize, yeah, that's very true. Very true. Uh, just a respect for where these people came from. You know, how did how do they write this whole novel back when you didn't have a computer, <laughs> you had a, maybe a typewriter, uh, or even before then, you wrote it down. Uh, and it was it was very very interesting. Uh, and then the other part is 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 a documenting and cataloging and archiving uh, the written word. And uh, to me, that's that's. Uh, uh, that's important. As well. That's a different, but it's also important. Mm-hmm. I know on Thursday we talk about the Gospel Project. We're talking about the manuscripts. Those are written down sometimes by scribes. And that was not necessarily... Um, those manuscripts were not not the same. Uh, different manuscripts had different content. 
And so, a, again, a healthy respect for documenting uh, the literature. So I found it, I thought, oh, wow, is this going to be interesting? Well, after I got into it, uh, I learned a lot, and I found it very interesting. Mm-hmm. I thought what was fascinating is you saw the first 15 minutes, and it's these people showing off their book collections, and you said, I have old books. Let's, go, let's, let's stop the movie and go look at my old books. I do have old books. And the funny thing is, like, those collectors would probably look at your old books and be like, yeah, these have sentimental value, but not monetary value. You know, exactly. They, they dealt in what has... So I think that the thing about books is that uh, people, especially if they come from a family where education was stressed, they value books. Whether those books actually have value in a used book marketplace or not. And, uh, you know, I have some books, and I always... I was proud of myself, but let's pull up eBay real quick. Um, I have books. I thought they were valuable. I take a look at, um, I have a first edition, first American edition of 1984 here in, in my library. And uh, it's in worse condition than this. And... Uh, So it's it's worth less than a hundred bucks, but I thought, oh man, this has got to be worth a lot, and really, it's a hundred bucks. It's not like, I don't know, a Honus Wagner baseball card or something. You know what I mean? <laughs> yeah. And that's probably the most valuable book that I have. I also have a, a first edition of Bob Dylan's Tarantula, his poetry book. And look at that. Ten dollars. Oh, I mean, that's the paperback. I have the hardcover. It's in pretty good shape, so maybe a hundred bucks. So the two jewels of my collection would fetch me maybe enough money for groceries for a month. You know, not really. I don't really have that great of a collection. I, you know, but you, you sort of collect. I found these at book fairs and stuff, or at the used bookstore, and they were amongst the other things. I'm like, whoa, this is valuable, and I clearly bought it. Probably paid five bucks for them or whatever and uh yeah you can make a return but i guess these people uh they you know they talk about going to estate sales at seven in the morning or you know just being on the hunt you know going through every single used bookstore in the midwest they would drive out west and they'd look at every single one and they'd try to find stuff and it's fascinating because i could see how it would be uh, sort of intoxicating to find a rare and somewhat valuable book. And it's, it's very cheap at someone's estate sale. But that would be a hard way to make a living. Because I've probably spent uh, 15 to 20 hours of my life, not, not a huge amount of time, but a, not an insignificant amount of time, collecting books. And my return on my investment... It's probably about two or three hundred dollars. <laughs> so, you know, you're not really gonna. Be, I mean, become. I guess if you knew what you were doing, you could sort of hack it a little bit. But I, that's kind of fascinating. It's not really a money making scheme. No, not at all. Uh, but from what I when I was listening to the movie, I began to realize these people uh, have a passion. Uh, they're following the passion, and. Uh, like like the bookstore in New York City that's three stories tall. They've been there since. Yeah, the Argosy. I don't know how. Yeah, the Argosy. 
and uh, they have all these books in there. And like like the lady said, uh, back in the fifties, they got angry. Forties and fifties, they got angry if you wanted to buy a book because that's their baby, mm-hmm. uh, you know. And it's not necessarily uh, money making. It's just a life that that you get into that life, and uh, it's enjoyable. You know, it's it's a world that you're in. And, and also, they says they want to read the books. So you can have enjoyment from actually reading the books. Mm-hmm. You don't just look at them. Uh, you actually read them and the stories. And so and also one thing I noticed, too, is that uh, everyone had a story. Yeah. You know, this book. Oh, there's a story behind it. You know, our store, there's a story behind it. And they got together and started telling, sharing stories. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it's a community. It's a community. And they're all, and like, none, none of them are that normal. They're all eccentric. <laughs> right. Uh, and they're eccentric in different ways, but they respect the eccentricity of each other. Mm-hmm. I thought it was a nice little community. I thought it was a, it was, it was fun. It was respectful. I think one thing that I liked about it was, like you said, you can read the books. And of course, the guy said, if you want to read Melville, don't buy a first edition of Moby Dick, <laughs> you know, like you're paying hundreds of bucks. You could get a paperback of it. Uh, it it's I mean, these these rare, exceedingly rare books are for collecting. But uh, just as a caveat, last year, was that last year? Yeah, 2020, before the world fell apart. I went to maybe it was 2019. I went to Phoenix, Arizona. And uh I went to the Musical Instrument Museum. And there's all these rare uh, rare instruments from around the world. And it's a museum, but it wasn't a store. The, the thing about these antique bookstores, like Argosy Books here in New York, here's some pictures of it. Uh, it's a store. You can walk through, you can take anything you want off of the shelf, I'm not maybe not anything you want, but most of the things you want off of the shelf and look at them. And one thing that really sort of disappointed me about going to the Musical Instrument Museum is that all of these instruments were behind glass and no one could touch them. No one could play them. You couldn't hear what they sounded like. And I thought to myself, that does a disservice to the instrument. Uh, Instruments are meant to be touched. They're meant to be played. Uh... And you put them behind glass, it's sort of like a zoo for instruments. And I didn't, I, I love musical instruments, but I didn't like the Musical Instrument Museum for that reason. Well, it's like, it's like going to a zoo and they have pictures of the animals. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, they don't have the real animals, they just have pictures of the animals. Yeah, it is it's like that. Like you see the instrument, but you don't really know and hear the instrument. <laughs> I think that's a good analogy because... I mean, for a zoo, you expect to see the animal in the flesh, but it's not like you expect to, like, ride a giraffe, (laughs) you know? But you go to see instruments. I mean, I love going to the guitar store and being able to pick up a guitar and play it. I I love that. Uh, But you go to this musical instrument museum, and it was like, like, it was like you said. It was like going to a zoo and just having pictures of the animals. Um, I guess you could see... The size and scope, but I could easily just Google the instruments, and it might have had the same effect, you know. 
Okay, David, you okay, I'm gonna go a little tangent here. Okay. What you said, I love it. Ride a giraffe. Yeah. <laughs> Ride a giraffe. And what you meant was is that yeah, you go there, you see it, but you can't really ride a giraffe. And but then again, uh, the my, my mind went to uh, when you go to a bookstore, it's like riding a giraffe. You can actually open the book, you can read it, mm-hmm. you can take it home and bring it back, and even old books, you can still open them and read them. It's like riding a giraffe yeah. at a zoo. <laughs> <laughs> but then again, uh, what what my mind went to is like uh, uh, today, uh, everything's digital and that changes our world. Uh, you can read these things on Kindle, mm-hmm. uh, but I'm, I'm thinking gaming. You can play a game now, you know, but you play a game. Uh, and I, I know you've played games online and I love watching them. Uh, but then some of these people, some of these gamers uh, win millions of dollars, you mm-hmm. know, and uh, and you think, why would you watch someone play a video game? Because you've played it. And it's like riding a giraffe. Yeah. You can play, look what they did. Look what they, I did that, I did that. And you could actually go into a tournament, some of them are free, and you can play against them. Mm-hmm. You just don't win, you know. And so someone was saying, why would anyone watch someone playing uh, that, that video game tournament? Well, uh, the question is, why do you watch football? Yeah. You don't even play it. Why do you watch hockey? You don't even play it. That's a good point. But you watch this video game, and I play it all the time. Mm-hmm. Okay? It's like riding a giraffe. Yeah, you get to and ride so the giraffe. You get to ride the giraffe. And you can actually be out there riding the giraffe with them. Mm-hmm. I love that saying. But now we know what it means. It's like riding a giraffe. You're, <laughs> you, you are there doing it with them. It's not looking at them at a distance or pointing. It's like, no, you are there with them. Mm-hmm. I like that. But I, I mean, like it's, it's a bookstore, not a book museum. Everything's for sale. And that's cool. That, that's right. That's right. Like I said, the other thing, too, like I said, uh, oh, I have... I. When they first came, I go, oh, I have some old books. And then, uh, and he says, yeah, maybe we'll look at it after the movie. Yeah. <laughs> I wanted to show you right then and there because there's a story behind the books. That mm-hmm. It's not just a book. There's a story that comes with it. And it is, and it is, uh, uh, and also the story is a story, but it doesn't have value until you tell someone. And that's why these people get together and tell each other their stories. Uh, can I pull up another video? Absolutely, yeah. So the bookseller is a lot about collectors and collecting. And uh, I was thinking about the nature of collecting. And it's like, you know, your books, it's like, this was my grandfather's Bible. This is, uh, or, you know, there's things that have sentimental value and they wouldn't be valuable to anyone else. And I thought about Throw Mama from the Train. Remember that movie? Oh, yeah. When Danny DeVito shows Billy Crystal his coin collection? I love that. That's the best scene in the movie, and uh, I have it pulled up here. Uh, Let's watch. Let's see it. You want to see my coin collection? No. No audio. Oh. 
Sorry. Yeah, I have to share it with you. I wish that it would just share my desktop audio by default without having to share a window. But let me let me get this going. This this is one of the best scenes in the movie. When I saw that scene, I thought, oh, my goodness, this is awesome. All right. You ready? I'm ready. You want to see my coin collection? No. I collect coins. I got a dandy collection. I don't want to see it, Owen. But it's my collection. I don't care. Look, Owen, I'm just not in the mood, okay? Never showed it to anyone before. Look at it. No, it's okay. Show me the collection. No, you don't mean it. Show me the coins. All right. This one is a nickel. This one also is a nickel. And here's a quarter. And another quarter. And a penny. See? Nickel, nickel, quarter, quarter, penny. Are any of these coins worth anything? And here is another nickel. Why do you have them? What do you mean? Well, the purpose of a coin collection is that the coins are worth something, Owen. Oh, but they are. This one here, I got in change. My dad took me to see Peter, Paul, and Mary. And this one, I got in change when I bought a hot dog at the circus. My daddy let me keep the change. He always let me keep the change. Uh, this one is my favorite. This is Martin and Lewis at the Hollywood Palladium. Look at that. See the way it shines on a little eagle? <laughs> Love my dad a lot. So this whole collection is... Uh... Change my daddy let me keep. What was his name? Ned. He used to call me his little Ned. That's why Mama named me Owen. I really miss him. It's a real nice collection, huh? Thank you, Larry. That's a touching scene. Best scene in the movie. That was awesome. Which is true. Very, so true. The point of collecting is it has to be worth something, but it's worth something if it's worth something to you. Yep. Still seeing, uh, still seeing, uh, YouTube. There we go. My now that I think of that, I, I remember my mother had a coin collection, and uh, I found it. And she goes, "Oh yeah, that's my coin collection." And then she she very quickly went see. Here's a half dime. It wasn't a nickel. It was a half dime hmm. from eighteen eighteen twenty eight or eighteen thirty. And so the first thing she said was, "That was my mother's." And uh, when you say that, it brings up all the memories of you and that person. Mm -hmm. And so collections, I always thought, why do you collect things? You know, they're, they're not going to be worth anything. But like that movie showed, they are worth things. Yeah. Our stories are our history. Our history are us. And so I thought the movie was really good about books. 
And like the books, I've never read the books that I have from the old books I have. And uh, one, and they didn't write them. Uh, they just had them. They owned them. One was a was a textbook that my mother had. The other is a textbook that my uncle had that my mother took from my uncle. And my uncle gave it to her when, because my uncle was older than my mother, her brother. And so this is just books they had. Mm -hmm. The other was an old Bible that my uncle had. And... But my uncle was was my my great uncle, my mother's father. His brother had the Bible and it was his and it had his name in there, but he was older than my grandfather. But my grandfather was born in 1868, so he was born 1850s, mm -hmm. and it was his Bible, you know. Anyway, just. And, and and the Bible doesn't matter, but the story does. Yeah, and I mean, it's just because something's old, doesn't mean it's rare. And just because something's rare, doesn't mean it's valuable. And I think that these people, they were part of a market, where they were on the hunt for things that are rare and valuable in the market. But the thing is, value and rarity doesn't have to be derived from the market. Value and rarity can be derived on a very personal level. It's valuable because it's the only uh, Bible in existence, probably, from your mother's side of the family, from the generation before hers. You know? Value because it's the only book that you have that your uncle gave to your mother. That's what creates rarity and value. It's one of one. Now, if you tried to find that textbook that he gave to her back in 1940, 1930, you might be able to find it online, and it might be $2. But the monetary value says nothing about the sentimental value. That's right. And it wouldn't be the same book, because the reason why it's rare is because it's attached to, to your family, to your history. That's right. And these booksellers had the very same story, had the very same connection. And uh, the three sisters, they talked about their father and they had the same connection in, even with the book uh, store. Mm -hmm. You know, it was hard to get rid of the bookstore, and uh, it, it was it was fascinating. It was a fascinating movie. It was enjoyable. I really liked it. I got into it. I got into it because I could I could see the the passion and the and the uh, emotion that they all that they all shared, mm -hmm. and they understood each other's emotion and passion. But, I mean, I think that they're, they were not sentimentally attached to any books. You know what I mean? The value wasn't sentimental. That's why they could deal them. That's why they could buy them and sell them. They wouldn't think about it. Uh huh. It wasn't a family heirloom. It, it had value in the market. And I think that's different because I think that uh, the Owen example, that's, I think that's meaningful collecting. Uh, but the... Uh, the way the booksellers did, that's meaningful, too, in terms of making a business out of buying and selling exceedingly rare artifacts. But that's different. And I think that most people are like Owen when it comes to the things that they collect. And they're not like these booksellers. Mm -hmm. Or if you're a rich guy and you pay $100,000 for a, you know, a, an old rare book, you're not like Owen either. That book doesn't have that sentimental attachment to you so you put it in your collection and you say look at me i have stuff that no one else can have uh 
but it's not the same. Is is the hundred thousand dollar book sitting on some rich guy's bookshelf worth more to him than the seventy one cents that Owen had in his coin collection? <laughs> probably not. Or probably about the same. Probably not. I mean, and but I did like the guy that said, you know, I never regretted buying books. I never regretted selling books. The only books I ever regretted were the books that I didn't buy. (laughs) So I think that it's actually the transaction that they're addicted to, not the owning, not the collecting, uh, the booksellers. Now, the booksellers, they were a conduit. They were a broker for book collectors. But if you own a store, you get stuff in, you sell it, you get stuff in, you sell it. You could have something that's amazing. But if someone comes by with the right price, you let go of it right away. So it was actually the transactions that they remembered, not, oh, look at my book collection. Yeah. Uh, In some cases, it's when you have really old books and you don't want to sell them, uh, it's the having. Uh, I have this. Mm -hmm. And... uh, and uh, I remember when I had a coin collection when I was young, and uh, I got tired of it, and I just kind of, I think I even gave it away. But thinking back, uh, uh, you know, you buy, when I was a kid, back in the 50s, you had these, you could put the coins in the little places. Mm-hmm. Well, I went all the way back to 1903, 1904, and you had Indian head pennies, and, and I had three uh three legged uh, buffalo nickels and it was all filled in uh today uh it probably could have been worth something but i just got tired of it he says no nah, i don't need it anymore mm-hmm. because after i acquired it all i had it it was the acquiring not having yeah so the, then i gave it to someone and uh, so it's a fascinating uh subject because part of it is is uh the transaction the other part is actually the ownership. Uh, the other part is the story behind it, the bookstore and the book itself. And, and the other part is is actually uh, the content of books, uh, like having uh, a, a 16th century Bible uh, is different than having the original Moby Dick. Mm-hmm. Because it's older and it carries more uh, romantic uh, story behind it. It's a very interesting. I, I was, I, I, I was. It was unexpectedly enjoyable to me. I, I liked the movie. And so, and actually, looking at the the re- reviews here, most people liked it. It was, uh, people liked the movie. It was released last year. No release date, March six, twenty twenty. Yeah, last year. Yeah, so they filmed it prior to the pandemic. That's why no one was wearing masks. Yeah. See, it's funny because, you know, you have all these books and it's like, oh, but you can get information from them. But last year I bought this, uh, the complete Harvard classics. This professor, he said, you know, this is everything you would need to know to have a good liberal arts education. You just need to read these books. There's Benjamin Franklin, William Penn, Plato, Epictetus, Marcus Aurelius, Francis Bacon, John Milton. Um, you know, it goes through all this stuff. And uh, here's the books. I mean, some these are three books, you know. There's so, it's uh, 20 volumes 
or 51 volumes of nonfiction, 20 volumes of fiction, 71 books. And I bought it last year and look at the price. Yeah. A buck 99. So all that information is there, you know, of course, I don't, I don't have a physical book, but I've been reading through the classics. I'm on volume two, so 69 to go. <laughs> but, uh, it's fascinating. You can get that library of here's a complete liberal arts education, um, according to some guy in Harvard in last the last century. But you can get it for two bucks. And I, I think, honestly, not to bash the university system, but obviously when you go to a university, you get social uh, interaction, networking, access to faculty and fellow students and staff, and there's that. But I feel like if an 18-year-old kid that didn't know what he wanted to do with his life and he was about to go to college and party for four years, if he took two years and spent four hours a day reading through the Harvard classics, um, after two years, he would know more than he was going to learn in those four years that he spent $20,000 a year going to college. Well, being in education, <laughs> uh, I understand what you're saying. It's true. Uh, but there's another perspective, and that is, I'll use the word perspective, because uh, a liberal arts education and education in general is one thing about the content, but you go to the university to get perspective. Mm-hmm. And so you can give you can give a book like like I mentioned Don Quixote because that's a very interesting a lot of imagery, right? Mm -hmm. uh, you can give Don Quixote. It's number fourteen. To, number fourteen. <laughs> uh, you can give that book to to five people from five different backgrounds, five different ages. They'll read it. You come and discuss it, and each one will take something different out of that book. And if you just take what you take, uh, you'll know the content of the book, but you really won't be educated about the book. So education is more than content. Yeah. Uh, it, it contains much more than, than that. And uh, that's why books are so uh, interesting, because different people can take different things out of the book. And so it's a device. It's just a physical, physical thing. But it can have so many dimensions to it. Mm -hmm. It's very, very interesting. Uh, and I guess that's kind of like, it's like, like a metaphor for life. I always thought Don Quixote was sad. Yeah, yeah it is sad. And uh, I mean, when you start reading it, it's kind of funny. Oh, this guy is crazy. He's, uh, he's delusional. But he holds on to that delusion till the bitter end. And it's like, I, this is bumming me out. This isn't funny anymore. <laughs> uh-huh. It's not, it's not a funny book. Uh, it starts funny, but then it goes, it's very serious. And I think uh, it's, and that's why different people could take different things out of the book, out of that, that particular book. Mm -hmm. Very, very interesting. It's just so And uh, it's kind of like Jojo Rabbit. Yeah. It's just, I don't know, you're holding on to a delusion 
And like at first, it's like it's kind of funny, and then it just gets more and more sad. I'm gonna put completely unrelated photo up on the screen of you know while I talk about Don Quixote, he he was delusional, and his unwillingness to let go of the delusion, I it just it got more and more sad as time went on. Right. <laughs> yes. Unrelated photo. That was an unrelated photo. Uh, very clever, David. That's true. <laughs> That's true. But uh, sometimes people who are delusional can have a following because people want to believe mm-hmm. in things. And like, the belief is not necessarily in your delusion. It's in their delusion. Like uh, David Koresh and the Branch Davidians. Mm-hmm. I heard... Uh, what is it? Or Nexium. Or Nexium, David. Cult Watch. I think it's Cult Watch. Uh, so maybe I, we should have one episode a week on cults. Cult Watch. I think this is... It's a big counter-cult website. Mm-hmm. I'm going to have this in my search history. Do you know who owns Cult Watch? I'm not sure. Uh, no. I'm not sure if it's Cult Watch. It's one of the big websites. Uh, the Church of Scientology. Fascinating, huh? Yeah. I mean, I've dealt with cults for many decades. Not dealt with them. I've talked about them. Th- studied, uh, studied them? I don't not really. Uh, I've heard things about them. I really haven't studied them. But then one thing that strikes me, uh, which again, this might be a great, uh, I have a book downstairs. I have a book <laughs> downstairs uh, that is the kingdom of the cults. And they talk about the cults. But interestingly enough, I, the, the, what I would take from that book is the first thing they do is define, they define what they def- what they think a cult is. So you have to define a cult. What does that mean? Mm-hmm. And once you've defined it, and then you go around and say, oh, they, this fits the definition, this fits the definition, this fits the definition. And, um, and I, found, I found that interesting. Like, oh, I, I never thought that would be a cult. But from their definition, it becomes a cult. Oh, oh okay. Because a cult has kind of a negative connotation, yeah. uh, but uh, but that book has the kingdom of the cults based on their definition. Yeah, and it's a very Christian, Protestant-centric view of true religion is Protestant Christian. This is what a cult is. <laughs> uh, fascinatingly enough, you know Billy Graham, and his son has become this sort of He's basically, his son's basically like Kenneth Copeland or or Oral Roberts these days. You know, I, I don't think that the apple fell that close. I mean, P- Billy Graham was pretty respected. I don't think his son is as respected. But Billy Graham was still alive, but I think his son was running things in 2012 when Mitch Romney won the nomination for the Republican Party. Um, and his church, what is their church uh, called? Do you know the, Billy Graham's church? No, I don't. Um, Franklin 
His son's name was Franklin. Franklin Graham. Right. Franklin Graham. Yeah. Samaritan's Purse. Uh, CEO of Billy Graham Evangelistic Association. Well, um, when Mitt Romney won the uh, Republican nomination, Billy Graham, who was, uh, Billy Graham was still alive, but I think he was so old he wasn't really calling shots back then. They took uh, the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints off of the Billy Graham Ministries official lists of cults. Because, you know, if you're an evangelical, you'll support the Republican, regardless of what religion he is. I mean, if the Republican were a Satanist, you would say, well, he's a good Christian. Because <laughs> he's a Republican. Yeah. So, uh, according to Billy Graham, Mormonism was a cult. And the only thing that made him change his mind was that a Mormon won the nomination for the Republican Party for president. <laughs> the, the Mormons didn't do anything. The, the religion was exactly the same before and after Mitt Romney ran. They had, so for 50 years, they hadn't changed. They were on the cult list. But all of a sudden, there's a Mormon, and he's the Republican nominee for president. And they say, oh, that religion that he is, it's not a cult anymore. Sort of makes you wonder if their criteria, if one of the unwritten criterias for what is and what isn't a cult is, is the current Republican nominee for president that religion? Because <laughs> if he is, then it's not a cult. Yeah, that's a good point. Very good point. But um, cult is a very interesting word, and it has the connotation of negative. Uh, something that is separate from mainstream uh, that that uh, gathers uh, power. And uh, there are some things you can definitely define as a cult uh, that is moving away from the mainstream. So to do that, you have to define what the mainstream is. Anyway, so there are books about that. And, uh, uh, and actually on Thursday, we're doing the Gospel uh, Project. And we do... Um, uh, we do. Uh, uh, we talk about uh, the Bible, mm -hmm. books of the Bible, and uh, that alone, you can take a book and interpret it so many different ways. A Bible is, is a is a great uh, uh, example of how you can interpret it so many different ways. Because uh, in the Gospel, we're doing Matthew, and uh, they do uh, so many parables. Where Jesus talks about the parable of this and parable, parable. And even in Matthew, he says, his disciples say, what does that mean? He goes, well, this is what I meant by that, you know. Mm -hmm. Well, I, and it's very likely when he told this parable to the people, everyone did not interpret it the way Jesus meant it. Yeah. Because uh, it's a story. When you see a movie, uh, a movie is going to, is telling a story. It's going to strike you different ways. When you read a book, it's going to strike you different ways. You're going to interpret it different ways. And part of it is going to be your background, uh, your uh, what you've experienced. You can tie that to your experience. And so different books, a, the, one book can have different interpretations by different people. Mm -hmm. it's, it's a, it is a fascinating uh, subject to get into, uh, owning books and buying books. 
Yeah. I, I do. I have a lot of books, but uh, I've gotten rid of with as I gotten rid of as many books as I have. Mm-hmm. Uh, but the point is, all these books were from my from my past. Yeah. And it just one little area. But a book, a book a collector, a book buyer, a book seller, uh, they'll have books in all different subjects. That's what I'm getting at. Yeah, and it's not about the possession. Like a book for a bookseller, they sell to collectors. They're not, I mean, I guess they're sort of collectors in and of themselves, but they'll get rid of anything. So it's, so, you know, you think of it in terms of, oh, it's a movie about book collecting, but not really. It's about these brokers who realize you can make a living sort of uh, finding these rare finds and connecting them to a person that wants them because that person collects them. Now, that person that bought them from these booksellers, it's probably a prized possession. But these booksellers don't care. It's just about sort of matching one to another. And that's a fascinating thing. You're providing someone the fulfillment of their hobby. You're doing a lot of work to sort of serve your clients. But at the end of the day, you're getting something that they want more than anything in this world into your hands, and you're immediately putting it into their hands. That's how you uh that's how you get things done in this world. You give people what they want. <laughs> mhm. But uh, some of these booksellers, they did have old books that they didn't want to get rid of. Mhm. And uh it it was they can live in a world of just books. And uh the uh, like this one lady called them her children, uh, and they have a connection. Well, uh, that was the lady book. that she put the, together the biggest collection of early American writings by women, though, right? She said she wasn't going to break up the collection, so she wasn't really. I mean, I guess she was a broker on some level, but she was an academician. And she said, I right. looked at these ang- these old books. I started going to these book fairs, and I realized the majority of books written. Between when the, the Pilgrims, 1750, let's say, 1750 to 1850, the first hundred years of America civilization-wise, uh, Western civilization-wise, there's scarce amounts of books that were written by women. Mm-hmm. So she took it upon herself to be like, I'm going to build the world's greatest collection of original early books written by women in the first 150 years of this uh, of the colonies and early America. And she did it. And that's going to be her legacy. And so that's, I mean, that's a bit different than saying, oh, this book is worth 500 bucks and you're selling it to me for 100? Yeah, I'll take it. And I'll immediately put it on the market. Yep. So they're not all the same. The booksellers, book collectors, they're, they're very different. Mm-hmm. Very different. And uh, some people can be both. Uh, they they buy to sell, but then they get a book that they really feel connected to. They'll save it. Mm-hmm. They'll collect it then and not really sell it. So it, it was a very interesting movie. I never thought of all those different uh, types, different dimensions of uh, people who own books. Uh, they might buy them to sell them, but they buy them to own them. And some buy them to read them. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I've never read that. So, so rarer books. They'll buy it to actually read rare books. Uh and I, this one guy had uh, one uh, guy as a museum. You may remember the museum 
where they, they had one of the original uh, Gutenberg Bibles yeah. from the 1600s. His like Imaginarium or whatever. And he's like, the books are not in alphabetical order. They're just arranged by size. And it's like, how do you find anything? <laughs> and how do you find anything? I, I don't think he said this, but I bet you ask him and he'll, he'll know where it's at. Yeah. I think you're supposed to walk around and just like look at stuff and then pull a book out and read it. Like it's just, you're not supposed to be looking for something. And that, that's what they said about the collecting. Um these days, you go into Barnes & Noble, you know what book you want, you go, and they have it, and paperback, and you buy it, and you go home. It's like this collecting is about, you go in and you look at everything they have, and on a good day, you might find something that's incredible, and you were not looking for that at all. And that's kind of cool. Mm-hmm. Finding something you weren't looking for that you really want, instead of going in and getting something you want without having to look for it. That's the difference. Yeah, you, yeah, you go in and shop, you don't hunt. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. But yeah, the booksellers. That's the booksellers. I think we can uh, cut off our... Oh, well, I guess one more thing I'd like to say is it's very chill. It's not salacious. It, like, we watched The Vow earlier this year or last year. Last year. Um, that's salacious. That's you know, it's a documentary. If It's a series. It's not a movie, but it's about this volleyball sex cult that this guy Keith Ranieri runs. But... uh that was very salacious, you know, and scandalous and bad things were happening. This is a good movie, I think. I would recommend this movie if you want something that's easy to watch, that's sort of interesting, that you can kind of zone out through half of it. But you just put it on and it's entertaining and it's lighthearted. It doesn't make you think too much, but it sort of takes you into this world and nothing troubling happens. And I, right. I, I kind of like that. It's like there wasn't some underbelly, dark underbelly of the book world trying to destroy these people. It was just these people living their lives and and nothing really happened. But that's a good thing. That That's my review. I like that. And it's a glimpse into their lives, into their passion, into something that it's a world. Yeah, just a glimpse into a world that you may not be familiar with. But once you see uh, their world, you, you begin to, I begin to appreciate um, how how valuable uh, their world is uh, because they're happy. Mm-hmm. They're happy. And uh, so many people have a world and they're unhappy. But these people just love their books and their books love them and they're happy with them. Uh, and they they share with each other and they tell show stories. Uh, it was just a real positive a pot to me it was a positive feel-good movie especially uh if uh, you have any type of uh connection with books mm-hmm. and, and 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 also there could be novels fiction non-fiction they could be uh my my connection with books was textbooks uh going through so much school and i by the way i still have the the uh the, the textbook that I used uh, for uh, Harold Cromer, uh, the statistics textbook, one of the, I don't think it was the first edition, but one of the earlier editions uh, where he goes through and talks about all of statistics. And I read that thing cover to cover more than once to make sure I understood that uh, before I took my uh, exams. And, uh, 
everything in there is pretty much statistics. Mm -hmm. If you want to know statistics, that's the world of statistics. Now, from that, uh, other things came. And so uh, so I have some some of my original that I that I use way back when, back in the 70s, 60s and 70s. But there's a there's a connection to them. Mm -hmm. There's a history. There's a connection and there's content. So actually, if you want a feel good movie, if you want a movie where you can uh, see a world where these people are comfortable or happy, uh, I think sometimes we need to see that and stop and and just smell the roses. And their rose is a book. Mm hmm. <laughs> They're doing something they're passionate about, and that's sometimes that's all it takes. Yep, and I think sometimes that's what we all need. Mm -hmm. Find something you're passionate about and just uh, that's going to be a feel-good. We need that in our lives. Well, I think we can leave it there. This has been episode 19 of the Sons of Sequoia podcast. Is it 19? Am I right? I think so. Um, we did it. We made it through 19. Uh, yeah. Movie Tuesday. Oh, I'll play the theme song one more time. Here we go. It's time for Movie Tuesday. <laughs> All right, Movie Tuesday. I'm signing off. Do you have anything else you'd like to say? Hey, I just want to tell everyone, uh, keep on talking. But listen more than you talk. And try to understand what people are saying. Bye. Bye.